Welcome to Gleaming the Tube, the podcast where Kevin and Mike watch a film in which somebody rides a skateboard at some point. Finally, a podcast where people talk about movies. Hello, Michael. Hello, Kevin. 1994's The Crow, based on the comic book series by James O'Barr, tells the story of Eric Draven, who's resurrected one year after he and his fiance are brutally murdered in order to paint his face like a mime, don his tightest leather pants, and then exact revenge on those who done wronged him. Uh, and one of the characters skateboards a whole lot. And here to discuss this film with us uh, this week, we have a special guest. We have Gary Mitchell. Hello. Hello. It is good to be here. So, Gary, you do you you're in you're involved in a lot of stuff these days. Fingers in many pies. So, why don't, why don't you walk us through? Yeah, I, I, I am fingering the pie, if you know what I mean. <laughs> we, we know what you mean. Uh, but yes, I am the the main thing people know would be I am the co-director of the American Sci-Fi Classics track at Dragon Con, along with Joe Crow. Hey. Hey. And where we do stuff every uh, Dragon Con. I am also uh, head of a fan group of theater uh, and live performance nerds who... Uh, we have a Facebook group, and we're we're pushing to try to get more theater programming and possibly a track at DragonCon. Fingers crossed. Uh, I am also a producer and co-host for the Good to Be a Geek Network, where with my lovely fiance Jessa Phillips, where I am the co-host and producer of a horror podcast called A Podcast of Amontillado. Damn. Which I could not believe that that pun had not been grabbed by the time I got to it. <laughs> When do you when do you sleep? The last time you were on the show, we we uh, we I, I marveled at the 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 pun that, that's uh, that's that's involved in that the name of that podcast. That is impressive. Yeah, that's a that's a full that's a full docket, my friend. Many pies, indeed. Uh, and Kevin's sleep is for the week. <laughs> it's true. And lunch hour at work. <laughs> so Gary, um. I, when we were talking about having you uh, come on again, and I said, the, you know, these are some of the movies we're considering, and you really kind of shined to the crow. Uh, so is this a movie that you're uh, a longtime fan of? Is this something that you have a lot to say about? I have so much to say about this. Anybody who knows me knows my favorite movie is John Carpenter's The Thing. Number two slot is always kind of a, a knife fight between The Crow and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Wow. Okay. Um, Heavy company. It just depends on my mood. <laughs> um, I mean, I fell in love with the the Crow property when uh, the third and final issue of the comic was about to come out, and there was an article about it in one of the comics magazines. It might have been Hero Illustrated, and it was talking about this indie comic that was coming out, and the final issue had been taking a long time, and it had the art from it. And I, I tracked it down, and the trade paperback was just coming out. So we're talking like 92, 92, 93. It's a little fuzzy. Trade paperbacks weren't that common back then either. No. No, it was, it was, a, it was a big deal, and especially because indie comics were not a big thing at that time either. I mean, Image didn't exist yet. It was Marvel, DC, and something you ran off of Xerox. 
but then and so I fell in love with the comic and then the movie hit and just hit me. And I saw it 13 times in the theater. Wow. Uh, now, mind you, I was working for a movie theater at the time, <laughs> so I didn't pay for any of them. But still, it was I saw it 13 times. The 13th time was when they re-released it for Halloween weekend that year as a special a hey, one night only. Nice. That's good symmetry there. The 13th time. And yeah, that's that please. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I am my best friend at the time. We just fell in love with it. Uh, the cinematography, the music, the acting. And then, of course, you know, the, the crushing weight of Brandon's death before it even came out. was right. Just like I, I'll be honest with you, that th- that is the only thing that I remembered about this mm-hmm. movie. I saw it in the, the in where Kevin and I are from. There is a there was a theater that would play sort of second run films after their initial run, and it was it was the, the two dollar theater. And I saw yeah, I, wor- I worked there. Oh, you did. That's right. You <laughs> yeah. worked at the Apple Valley. So Apple Valley Cinema. Shout out. But uh, I saw the Crow there, so it was probably a few months after its initial theater run. Um, and I will tell you that. The movie left almost a zero impression on me at, <laughs> at 19. Uh, I disliked it for all of the reasons I think that like a sort of a wannabe cool guy, punk rock skateboarder kid would not like a movie like that when they were mm-hmm. 19. Um, and I, I honestly thought, and I hate to lay into it so bad because you are such a fan, but I hey, go for it, man. <laughs> I watched it again yesterday and today. And I, I honestly thought that there was there was going to be a, two scenarios that either a I would watch it and realize that I was wrong and that the movie is actually fucking amazing and that I was just being a dick because I was nineteen and that, that your job at nineteen is to not like things or b that I would be able to like like appreciate it in at least a a, a way that it was like an interesting. Uh, time capsule and I can tell you that neither of those things are true I did not like the movie this time around either <laughs> I thought it failed well it, it is a time it is a time capsule though Mike oh my goodness like, well like we did car wash last week and I was like car wash this is a time capsule of 1976 there could not be a more 1994 movie than the pro I I completely agree and I think it's possible that the reason that I had a second negative I will I do want to back up and say that I enjoyed watching it this time just for the sheer sake of like I was impressed by how uh, it failed on every <laughs> on, on every level to entertain me in any way. But I will also say that I think, and this is me just being 100% honest, I think it's possible that Kevin's assertion that it's a time capsule of a certain time and place is so accurate that I think it was making me feel about my life the way that I felt about my life at 19 or late 18 or 19 and I didn't like that at all I was like I don't like this why won't girls talk to me it was was, I really I gotta tell you man I was I was I was impressed to the point where I would almost say I was gobsmacked by how not good I felt like this movie was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and, well, you're definitely right. Not only is it 
1994 uh, time capsule, but it's also a goth. Oh yeah. Time capsule. I mean, goth had been around since the seventies. I mean, goth is not new, but it was on a resurgence, you know, Lydia from Beetlejuice kind of kicked off a bit. Sure, Sure. Um, and the, the underground scene was coming up. The, you know, alternative stuff was, was getting more mainstream sure. and known. And there, you couldn't swing a dead bat without hitting a goth kid after this movie that came out that didn't do the crow, crow look or makeup to even, you know, Sting changed his whole persona. Sure. The, the wrestler, he was like, he, oh. he used to be like an ultimate warrior knockoff. And then suddenly he was the crow knockoff or <laughs> sad Sting. Uh, it's funny. When you it. said Sting, I was like, searching in my brain for like wait did the guy from the police go through like a He's super right. god like did i how did i miss that but it, but you, but of course you mean the yeah. yes fantastic. yeah i'd pay good money to see Stuart copeland put on a goth outfit <laughs> sure that would be that would be fantastic yeah I, I think for me uh the comic came out during a period when i was sort of out of comics like i had given up comics when i was about 16 because I could not afford like comics and records. And I, I, and I chose records and I, I got back into comics like a couple years after this, but I was vaguely aware that it was a comic book that had like joy division quotes and quotes from the cure who are both bands that I like. Um, but I was always sort of turned off by the gothiness of it just because I always felt that goth took itself very seriously. And I think, uh, you know, Mike and I knew each other at the time and I feel like we, at the time had turned not taking ourselves seriously into a lifestyle effect. Sure. Sure. That was a, that was a a cornerstone of of every interaction that we, that we had. When I saw the movie, our friend, Rich Borges was like super excited about this movie and loved Brandon Lee. And I went with him and I remember liking it at the time. I like thinking like, Oh, that's interesting. Like there were not a lot of superhero movies. When this mm-hmm. came out, there had been the Burton Batman ones, which was is a clear influence on this. Sure, sure. Um, mm-hmm. But there wasn't too much else, and I remember, I remember kind of liking it at the time, but not feeling the need to like see it again. So I have not watched this since it first came out, and you know, I watched it last night, and I was just struck by how deeply silly this movie yeah, is. Really, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's like if. If you had asked me the day before yesterday, Mike, do you remember that there is a scene where the crow is standing atop his apartment building playing the electric guitar shirtless in the rain? <laughs> I would have said there's no fucking way that that's actually like it'd be one of those things that I, like you would like say that in a joke, like mocking way of the movie. But the that then it happened, and I was like standing up cheering, like yes, it's that's real. He's doing it, that. It happens twice. Twice. Yes. <laughs> I was like, that's this is like this is amazing. Like I, <laughs> and I, I think part of it is because like when the movie came out, and you know we've alluded to this, but we haven't really talked about it. Like Brandon Lee, who plays Eric Draven, uh, died in a onset accident when he was nearly finished filming and this movie came out as like his final performance at the time, it was controversial that they were even going to release it. I remember. That. Um, and I think like that tragedy was so in, intertwined with um, 
you know, the story behind the film being released, that it was hard for people to go to it and say, this movie is ridiculous. Um, but at 30 years having passed, I can now watch it with fresh eyes and say that this movie is <laughs> ridiculous. It is, and yet it isn't, because if you compare it to other superhero movies, especially for the time, there is a kind of groundedness to it. This is a dirty world. These feel like, yeah, they're sets, but they still feel like kind of like real grungy streets. The, none of these people are attractive, except for Mike Wincott, who, no, oh, oh. <laughs> him and his half-sister are both very fetching. But most of these people are grungy. T-Bird's got the three scars on his head. They They, you know, they don't make these people pretty. Darla looks run like a rundown in her 30s waitress in a club called the pit <laughs> <laughs> i mean when we see everybody's apartments they're shitholes oh yeah if i can say oh shithole. yeah, say, say uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay i forgot to clear our, uh, our our cursing meter before we started i'm sorry michael and, <laughs> michael and i work blue <laughs> okay well good so it's a fucking shithole <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, his, his the apartment that that he dies in, and he and his fiance die in. At, we see that the year later, and it's a total mess. Like Fun Boy's apartment is grimy, and I feel like I'm gonna get tetanus just watching that scene. So I mean, and when he's running on the rooftops, it's very stylized, but it's a comic book, so I can it's the it, it does a nice mixture for me of. The comic book stylizations, the influence, like you said, of the Burton movies, but at the same time, there is this kind of gritty, real life to it. Like when he goes, when um, Skank goes into the deli, and the it just looks like your standard what you would expect a Detroit convenience stop and rob to look like. Right. So the movies are uh, directed by Alex Prius, who came out of music videos, mm -hmm. and you can kind of see that like all over the way this movie is edited and shot. Oh yeah. And like, it, like, like Gary said, it's very, it's very stylized. And I think if you get on its wavelength, mm -hmm. uh, especially at the time when there weren't a lot of movies like this, I could see it. I could see why this resonated with people. Yeah. And it, it's that aesthetic. It's the music, which this may be one of the most solid soundtracks out there because it's like, it is a perfect snapshot of grunge alternative radio at the time before it hit big. Right before, before, like grunge was out there and college radio was a thing. But if you look at the bands on this one versus, say, like the sequel, I mean, there's, uh, uh, you know, we, we've got you know, Cure, we've got um, Helmet, we've got Courtney. I, no, Courtney lives on the second one. But I mean, just a whole lot of underground. Nine Inch Nails, I think, covered Joy Division on the soundtrack. Yes, sure. uh, every night I burn, which yeah. I thought was which I thought was interesting. Stone Temple Pilots, I think, are on this. Mm -hmm. um, I, I felt like this was uh, I, I felt like this kind of hit when when grunge was kind of ascendant. Like Pearl Jam had hit big, Nirvana had definitely hit big. I think this may I think maybe Stone Temple Pilots were about to break through. The Cure mm -hmm. have always sort of been off in their own Cure world. Like, The Cure had that, you know, a number two hit in 1989. Um, and I think they were almost on a downswing by the time this movie yeah. came out. But I think they were so intertwined with with the comic. I mean, I had read that, like, one page of the comic is just the lyrics to The Hanging Garden, which uh, 
is also maybe uh, my ninth grade science notebook. So <laughs> why I didn't publish that as a comic book. No, um, but it, it's, um, I think what it sort of presaged rather than the grunge stuff is hot topic. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. Leather pants. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Like hot topic hadn't become like a going concern yet. Um, when this movie came out and I think in a year or two, and I think the crow kind of helped, helped push that. I remember when hot. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I remember when hot topic opened to the mall, I was livid. I was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> it's like an alt rock Spencer gifts. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a kid who wasn't cool enough to be goth, but I wanted to be, it was like, it, it, like I said, it, it tapped a nerve mm-hmm. in me. And like, I was one of those kids who looked in hot topping, like, I want to buy some of that stuff, but I'll look like an idiot. So I'm not going to. <laughs> There's a, um, I really like the club scenes in this movie are very much like, the, they're like the clubs in every movie where very few clubs are actually like that. I, I grew right. up thinking clubs were going to be like the clubs in this movie. And with a couple of rare exceptions, that's never been the case. It's always like, it's you know, it's always like a black room that's too small with a bathroom that doesn't work. With a with a stage in the the complete wrong place. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the one exception I will give in the Boston area, there was a club called, called Man Ray. And Mike, did you ever go to Man Ray? I did. Yeah, yeah. Man Ray was a goth club in Boston that, that closed for a few years. It's it's recently reopened. I have not been to the reopened one. Man Ray lived up to the promise of the clubs in the movies when I went there as as like a teenager because they were like drag queens and people dancing in cages and people breathing fire and i was just like this finally finally yeah. they, <laughs> someone someone did it someone did yes. this there's lots this of this is always, the club there's always lots of writhing <laughs> at, at man Ray. a it's lot so of writhing at man so Ray. much writhing <laughs> <laughs> and uh i think medicine and thrill kill cult both play on stage yeah. at, at the club in the yeah. and and i and one of my favorite things about those performances are both the two bands i really like but the sound shit <laughs> in her performance there's a fuzz it's like okay yeah this is a shitty club <laughs> i so it's funny that you bring that up because i thought that was just me where and i think it was actually in my mind it was all the music in the movie seems like it's like like really dim and really like turned down low and i'm kind of like it always sounds like the music is like playing on someone's stereo three rooms away yeah, well that's actually one of, the, one of the things i do like about the movie is almost all of the soundtrack songs are being played in the movie as what is it called diadetic soundtrack yeah where i mean like for when uh fun boy gets killed and they're listening to um golgotha tenement blues that's playing on his stereo we we open up with that shot. Oh, okay. So that's playing. that's yeah. by design. All right. Yeah. Because there was a couple of moments where I was like, man, if the music was punched up a little bit, I feel yeah. like it'd be a little bit more impactful. But now that you meant that, if if, if that's a mechanism of the mm-hmm. of the movie where they're actually supposed to be physically listening to that, it makes a whole lot more sense, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. The the Rage Against the Machine song is playing off one guy's radio in the background. Right. <laughs> Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I think there's a lot of scenes of the the young girl skateboarder kind of with her headphones on. And Mike, uh, we had talked when we did the show on the commitments before. We had talked a lot about skating in the rain. Oh my and, goodness, Kevin! 
It's always raining in this movie. Uh, I, in fact, it's more like surfing than yeah, skating. I, I, will, I will say this. One of the, okay, as a 18 and 19 year old skateboarder kid watching this movie, I will to one of the biggest pet peeves. You, you, you just don't do that. You don't get your board completely wet and waterlogged. It, I, I remember as a kid seeing the movie and thinking that there were these like two unforgivable crimes committed in on screen at, at the you know at the at the at the peril of skateboarding and one of them was the wet skateboard just just destroyed me that you would just ride your skateboard through a puddle and ruin the bearings and the wood would get all waterlogged and i mean i understand for the character it was more of a mode of transportation and almost sort of like a to- like a totem like a teddy bear but still you're not getting that board wet and then the other thing that I, I I saw it again yesterday, and it bothered me so much. Is that the the approach that the 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 skateboarder character kid uh, employs when they're pushing their skateboard is what we call in skateboarding pushing mongo, which is <clears throat> that any any aesthetically aware, self respecting skateboarder on the planet knows that you push with your back foot with your front foot at the front of the board and sort of adding to the momentum by pumping with your, with your front leg. And this kid is pushing with the front foot, with the back foot planted on the board. And it is one of the most aesthetically disturbing <laughs> things that uh, there are, there are entire websites dedicated to people arguing over Mongo versus regular pushing. And it's just, it's just an atrocity. It's like you want to. I I remember being as kid in the in this theater, seeing it, be like, "Oh my god, she's pushing Mongo." That's just that's just unforgivable. <laughs> okay, see, and I find that absolutely wonderful to hear from you because there was a wonderful there was a lady I met a few years later who was a big skateboarder, and I was talking to her, and I, was, I mentioned that I loved The Crow, and she's like, "I hate that movie. I can't stand it." why she says because the actress versus the stunt person one is riding goofy foot and the other (laughs) one's riding legger and i can't stand that it's not doing it's obviously not the same person yeah in every way possible i am a pretty pretty liberal open-minded cat but when there are certain things about skateboarding where I become this weirdly staunch Republican about skateboarding, like you're only <laughs> supposed to push this way, and and that's one of those that's one of those hot button things for me, man. I I am I have not evolved an iota from when I was 18 in on that on that subject. <laughs> oh, that makes me happy. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> now but, yeah, have to, that was guys... one of the reasons. One of the reasons both I love this movie, and that's one of the reasons I want to talk about. The other is like. I actually know something skateboardy, goofy foot. <laughs> I can actually contribute. <laughs> Don't even get me started about Switch Mongo. That's a I'll lose the whole crowd here. But I can't even. Uh, I I get I get very I get very worked up about those things. Now, Gary, I think this movie, and I want to I want to get your thoughts on this, um, was hugely influential in terms of the look of action movies for the next couple of years and oh yeah especially because the fight scenes were again they they were stylized but more realistic that's one of the things that brandon leach was talked about when when he was doing the movie is 
this guy is not a trained martial artist. You know, Brandon Lee is, but this is a guy who's a musician. And so it's a lot more brutal. It's a lot more direct. Like when he goes up against uh, 1010, there's a lot of just the, like 10 can throws a punch at him and the way he blocks and then punches and throws him. It was stuff that a lot of people hadn't been seeing. I mean, we're talking 94, uh, not a lot of Asian influence, martial arts influence was in movies at the time. It's not like, you know, you know, I remember being a kid in the six in the seventies and watching movies where the fight scenes where the two guys grabbed each other and just wrestled and rolled around on the ground for a while. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned that because I remember in the early nineties in the early to mid nineties, like finding those like, Hong Kong action movies, especially the John Woo ones, and just being blown away. And as the decade wore on, seeing Hollywood sort of adapt more and more of that into their fight choreography. And I, I like, I think you're right. I think like The Crow is maybe one of the first salvos of that. Right. There's actually legitimate wire work for a minute or two, right? Like he, Mm-hmm. jumping from rooftop to rooftop and they do a like a wirework stunt which is certainly not a term i would have known in 1994 that's for sure yeah and, and that's because you know he's brandon freaking lee and his dad helped invent that uh a lot of that i mean there, there's a lot of influence there uh brandon lee is bruce lee i don't know if you've ever heard of bruce lee but he's bruce lee's son just for the people listening who don't who don't know that yeah yeah, which and it's so tragic. They both died so young, and that was another reason this movie kind of got an underground or um, unseemly popularity because there were a lot of people who were like, "There's a curse in the family," sure. and just and I think Dragon, the Bruce Lee story movie, had come out maybe the year before or right. around the same time because I, I remember that was also playing at the two dollar movie theater I worked at, mm-hmm. and it's hard because I do I genuinely feel like. No one in the history of cinema ever looked cooler kicking the shit out of people than Bruce Lee. Mm. So, like, it's a testament to Brandon that he's as good as he is in the fight stuff here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Look out for there's a he's like he only did like two or three movies before this. But the one I like to recommend to people is Showdown in Little Tokyo, which he did with Dolph Lundgren. Is really fun little movie. Uh, especially because Dolph Lundgren's character is the one that grew up in the East and grew up learning martial arts from childhood. And Brandon Lee's character was more, he picked it up starting when he was like five, but he's the, he's the loose, happy cannon versus stoic Dolph. Um, And they have a great chemistry and it's, and it's a fun little movie, but kind of getting back to this one. It really, this movie, if he had not died, this was the movie that probably would have launched him to superstardom. I mean, he was on the cusp. People had started to notice him. People had started to pay attention to him. And then this movie, I think, would have just done gangbusters for him. I think so. Um, I do think, like, one of the failing, I think one of the failings of the movie is because it starts with the murder, like, I never gave a shit about Eric or his fiance, but I, and there are some flashback scenes, but I wonder if, because, you know, they had not finished shooting by the time Brandon was killed on set, if they would have had like more scenes that would have 
filled that in better because um, I was wondering if, if, or if just they, they decided like, that's not the point. We just want to get to him dressed as a mime beating the shit out of people. Possible. I know that they were pretty much down to just some pickups, which is the main reason they were able to finish the movie. Like it's also one of the first movies to do CG work because all the stuff at the very beginning where he's, walking most of the stuff when he I mean, there are a few shots where it's brandon but there are most of the shots where the guy where draven's walking through the city finding the clothing making his way to the apartment was after i, I was wondering died. where the switch and was. that was yeah. a body double and the scene at when he listens to the cure song and paints his face and steps up to the window and that's a beautiful shot and the lightning hits and we see him for the first time that's a body double they cgi'd brandon's face oh, oh really huh i yeah i mean i guess they did yeah. a good job because i sure didn't pick up on it i, I in fact I, I remember i i sort of spent a lot of the viewing this time kind of wondering to myself where because i knew that they had gotten almost everything they needed but I was wondering, like, where, and because that was the thing when I was looking it up on IMDb, I also noticed that it's like, hmm, there's like 17 people listed as doing voice work. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to, like, what, like, is that, did they do a shitload of punching in afterwards to, like, sort of save the plot? Or, like, why were there so many voice artists? Well, he, Brandon, Brandon couldn't do ADR. So it, some, some of it was maybe that. So, because, right. But seventeen people. Like, it, takes, it takes a village, Michael. Uh, it's true. It's true. Thank you, Kevin, for reminding. Clear, me. Like Brandon Lee clearly has like screen presence. He looks he looks great in, in the film. But I wasn't I wasn't so sure like about the performance. And again, I don't know how much of that is. They didn't get all. They didn't have time to get all the shots they wanted. I thought in some scenes he was good, and in some scenes he was a little iffy. I felt like he got there was a sort of certain point where I felt like they sort of started to humanize him a little bit again. And the, those little human moments that he actually has with the with the with the the cop character. Oh, by the way, I before I forget, and it's kind of bums me out because they address it, but how hilarious is the scene where Ernie Hudson's character is at home in his yes. underpants, still wearing the cop hat? Like I I hate that they pointed out because it would have been so much funnier if he was just like, I'm at home wearing my cop hat and my boxer shorts. I, I was laughing hysterically at that. But then he's like, oh, you're still wearing a cop hat. I'm like, no, <laughs> let the moment land on its own. <laughs> it's for me, though, I love that because especially it was the first time I watched it with my, my best friend at the time. She's like, he still has his hat on. Then Brandon <laughs> Lee says, you still have your hat yeah. on. We were like, <laughs> yeah, see, I wanted it to just go on no on unsaid, which I or like a weird a weird mug to the camera where where the crow looks at the camera like this guy wearing his. And I think hat. Ernie Hudson <laughs> gives the best performance in the movie. I think. Oh, absolutely! That's a dude who's been doing solid work for decades. Like, I got to give it up for Ernie Hudson. Like, mm-hmm. he's he's totally solid in this film. Yeah, well, yeah, and like Michael said, that scene is actually really touching where they're discussing what happened to you what's going on and you know the you know talking about you know the little things used to mean so much to Shelly I thought they were trivial nothing is trivial or the you know you know talking about the divorce or and just the way he looks when he's leaving like he's 
he's not the invincible Batman superhero point. This is a vulnerable guy who's dealing with the fact that I died. Right. And I'm going to, I'm going to express myself the only way I know how I'm going to climb the top of my apartment building and play the guitar shirtless in the rain. And I think uh, like, I think one of the reasons that the comic resonates with people is uh, James Abar is his fiance, I think was killed by a drunk driver and he was yes. working that out on the page. Yes. And I think sometimes like, you know, when you are channeling trauma through art, that is something that can connect with people. I mean, there was a long time he couldn't even look at the comic once it was done because it was dealing with that trauma and then the trauma of Brandon's death. And I don't like, um, did you feel like, did you go into the movie like as a comic, as a fan of the comic and think it was like a good adaptation or did, was there stuff that you wanted to see that they, you thought they fucked up? Not really because the, the comic is very moody. It's very art. It's very goth poetry boy. <laughs> you know, and I, I, and I say that with love. I say that as yeah. someone who appreciates that. But it's very much, like you said, it's, it's an exploration of grief with violence. Um, there's a lot of meta, visual metaphor, and then there's a lot of scenes of him just, you know, killing these scumbags who got it coming. And the way the movie repurposed it a bit, it made Top Dollar the main bad guy. Top Dollar was more T-Bird in the comic. And the comic just kind of is, you know, he goes through, he kills the bad guys. The was end. Top Dollar's pile of you cocaine know, as comically large as it is in the movie? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, um, yes. And, and did he have an ornate cabinet of swords? <laughs> now, that he did not have. No, it, it is much more uh, grounded in that level. There, the, you know, Top Dollar, none of these guys are, are criminal kingpins. But that's one of the things I do like about the movies. It did give it an overarching bad guy. And Michael Wincott's performance for me is fantastic. I love the little bits of, you know, I think we broke her. Or when he stabs Gideon through the neck and then would you just fucking die? And <laughs> and then the sword slash uh, lightning rod fight on the top of the church at the end. And uh, Bay Ling is his sister who like had a very small role in I think the Star Wars prequels too. Um, yes. I thought, I thought she was a lot of fun where she's like, the Raven gives him power. Like I thought and she, she reminded me of like, a, and I know the crow came back as a, like a sit, like one of those hour long syndicated action show shot in Canada, mm-hmm. but she reminded me of a character from one of those shows. I don't know, man. Wet leather pants <laughs> started making me just, he must be chafing <laughs> like a bear in those pants. Well, you see, when you're a supernatural being, chafing isn't, you know, yeah, a thing. No, yeah, no, I, I, you're right. The, you, you, got, you guys are bringing up really good points. I also think there's a really funny human little scene where when the, when the Ernie Hudson's character buys the little girl a hot dog and she seems like she's having a hard time with the hot dog. And I don't know what's going on there. She doesn't seem to know how to bite into a hot dog. And it's... I, I will. I have to say this movie changed the way I eat hot dogs. Every time I have a hot dog now, I hear Ernie Hudson in the back of my head going, the mustard goes underneath. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to, to this me, day, 30 years later. <laughs> it's funny. Only a couple of years ago that I caught like wouldn't. It'd be much easier if you just put the condiments on first 
mm-hmm. and then the hot dog on top of it. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And and let's thank Ernie Hudson for that. I mean, he's been doing he's been doing a lot of a lot of good work. I think Ernie Hudson was my favorite part of the whole movie. Yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, oh, his when he he meets him after the the pawn shop blows up and and he and the crow scampers off and he's like looking like a mime from hell. At least he didn't do that walking into the wind shit. I hate that. That's <laughs> good stuff. It's a solid line. Yeah, That's there's a, so much of this. I wonder if it was Ernie uh, ad libbing. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he's like, look, I'm gonna go a little off script here mm-hmm. because I'm Ernie fucking Hudson. Yeah, and you—that's what you paid for. Mm-hmm. The E train is leaving the station. Get on board. That's what you. I'm sure that's that's that was the spirit of it. Now, Gary, I've never seen any of the sequels to this. Don't just <laughs> don't. <laughs> okay, so I let me tell this. Let me tell you this story. When my friend and I, who who fell in love with this movie, we went to go see the second one when it came out at the theater. We walked in. Watch the movie. We walked out. I noticed people who were coming in to watch the next showing. We went and sat in her car and we spent so long ragging on and tearing apart how awful the movie was and how we hated every minute of it to the point at one point I looked up and the people that were coming in as we were leaving were leaving from their movie. We spent wow. more time talking about and complaining about the movie than the movie runtime. See what people did before podcasts. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, w- would you say that the second uh, crow movie is for the birds? Oh, I would indeed. Could you say that it's for the birds? I would say that it's definitely for the birds. Nice. That's the pull quote right there. There it is. Oh, we got it. Yeah. We got and, it. Yeah. And I remember the third one was being debuted at Dragon Con around 2000, 2001. I think it might have been 2002, but uh, good, my friend Joe Crow. And Shane Ivey, who were the guys brains behind hecklers at the time, and or not hecklers, uh, zealot at the time, they got to go see it at that. It was they it was playing for as a preview showing on like the Friday night and the Saturday night, and they saw it on the Friday. And then I saw them at Saturday, and I'm like, I'm gonna go see the crow tonight. And they were like, No, don't for the love of God, don't <laughs> let our pain go be in vain. I did eventually watch it, but oh my, oh, Michael Boreanaz can't save it, it's rotten. And they just go downhill from there. I have not seen the TV series. I hear it's okay. I know the guy who was the the Master Chef character in um, the American Iron Chef series. Yeah, is uh, the the Crow character in it? Um, he was also in John Wick three recently. Oh, the sushi assassin. Sushi I I think I've only ever seen the first John Wick movie. So, uh, yeah, but. And I like him. He's a good actor, but he, I, I just never found the time for the TV series. Right, right. I was like, no, I love the first one, and I leave it at that. There's only so much time. There's too much good television for mm-hmm. to, to waste time on a possibly mediocre The Crow TV show, right? With a lot of franchises, I find sometimes it's best just to stick with the first installment and ignore everything that comes after. Yeah. Just let it, let it, let it down. As those returns diminish, <laughs> you <gotta laughs> jump yes. off. There, it's it, it's the rare sequel that's good or better. You know, Empire looms at us, and that's the only one that comes to mind. I like the second Planet of the Apes movie mm. of the original series. I really like the second yeah. Planet of the Apes. I think that's that holds up. Yeah, beneath beneath Planet of the Apes. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, so I'm going to actually contradict what we just said because Beneath and Escape are both really, really good movies. Then they start hitting diminishing returns, but those first three apes, but... Yeah, there's always there's always the outliers, right? There's a... It's figuring out when to get out. Yeah. Right. Uh, like okay. the sixth Ma and Pa Kettle movie is about yes. the time to mail. <laughs> but getting back to The Crow... Um, I love this movie. I mean, I, I, it is, I've got, if we were record, if we were, if I was recording in my bedroom, I have a signed J.O. Bar print of the crow. I have a giant 18 by 17, another art piece by him. I have the uh, one Mezco 112 collective $80, uh, the crow figure. I've got the McFarlane toys figure. I've got, Every version of media they've released it on. <laughs> oh, wow, the 4K is coming. I think. Yes. Sweet. Yeah, I would go on. I would go on record and say that I uh, I enjoyed not enjoying <laughs> the Crow very very much. <laughs> I thought it was an interesting watch. I was uh, like, I was never bored. Mm-hmm. True. Um, and True. which is like my the most unforgivable thing a movie yeah. can be for me. Yeah. Um, I'd much rather hate it. <laughs> at least yeah. you feel something right 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 like uh was we watched like righteous kill and that was just punishing to watch this was Damn, like this was like there was always something really crazy happening on screen so i was like i was engaged like you know he's he's playing guitar on the roof <laughs> the oh i love in the car chase when the one when the two cops are sitting there yeah. and the guy's like can't even legally call it cream and then gets yeah. the coffee all over him or the <laughs> when skanks driving trying to wipe the the misting off which i've done that i can't see and the the the, the window handle comes off and he's like the damn foreign cars <laughs> yeah it's a it's a very strange movie well gary thank you for joining us to discuss the crow i think uh you brought some uh needed perspective in terms of uh, like a much needed perspective on it so this episode did not just evolve into mike and i going like he plays guitar on the roof right and yeah yeah that that yeah. would have been that would have been a little a, a rough listen it would have been a 12 minute episode this movie was terrible good night <laughs> yeah and and i haven't even begun to gush over this movie if you, if you guys just want to leave and keep the recording going yeah, I'll yeah, go for like do a supplementary episode of and another thing well yeah uh, while we're here like uh what are some other things that that really pop for you with this the one thing that for me really sticks out was when he kills t-bird by strapping him into his own car and t-bird's going why are you making a big deal out of this why are you doing this to me and then he realizes who draven is and suddenly just flips to the i know you but you can't be you there ain't no coming back and the way that becomes his mantra of there ain't no coming back and him kind of acknowledging the unreality of someone's back from the dead for revenge. That can't happen. And then what does the implications of that? And he quotes uh, the Paradise Lost, which he you know read in their apartment, you know, at last the devil stood and felt how awful goodness is. And that for me, that's why you hire that actor. And which we we didn't even mention that it's the guy from the Warriors. You know, come on and play. Oh yeah, shit yeah, yeah. But I love the and the way the dialogue is is very stylized. The way like, when he goes to report in that Tintin's been killed, he's like, "I've come to tell you that one of my crew got himself perished." Which you know, sounds like a dead sounds like a Deadwood line. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It's like someone stuck all his knives in his internal organs in alphabetical order. <laughs> Were the knives in alphabetical order or the organs in alphabetical order? The organs. Okay. Yeah, yeah. somebody yeah. stuck all his knives and all his organs in, uh, in alphabetical order. As I thought, I was wondering if his knives had names. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, I love that when Tintin is trying is selling stuff to the the pawn shop guy and the pawn shop's like oh this leather purse and he's like leather and he's like yeah is this a blood stain <laughs> uh, i forgot about who, what's that actor's name who runs the oh, pawn shop i like that guy john, he's great in all the john polito possibly he's so good in all those cone brothers movies it was he it was uh it was nice to to see him yeah he he plays a scumbag very well and we haven't even mentioned tony todd as the as the right hand of uh, Top Dollar, as the run in the club. The, oh, yeah. yeah. Tony Todd's good in this movie, too. And, and the big gunfight, the big set piece gunfight when he goes after Skank. And, you know, he's like, I'm just here for him. And Top Dollar's like, well, you can't have him. And it devolves into that very stylistic, very hyper gunfight with the muzzle flashes lighting everything up. That's a fantastic action sequence. So, Gary, what's coming up on the podcast of Amontillado? Our next episode is we are currently in a series examining the Friday the 13th movies. Uh, we call it the Camp Crystal Lake Camp Counselor Handbook. Uh, we looked at the first three, then we looked at four, five, and six because there's, you know, the first three is the arc that builds Jason to the character we know. Four, five, and six is the Tommy Jarvis arc. And then this Tuesday, I'm not sure when you're releasing. Uh, but the next episode that will be out as of the time of this recording is our look at six and uh, is our look at seven and eight with Sean Rosado and his wife, Laura and Laura Rosado and uh, examining the, the highs and lows of Jason versus Carrie and Jason takes Manhattan also known as Jason <laughs> just takes a boat ride. Cause he's just, he doesn't get to Manhattan until an hour and four minutes into this 86 minute movie. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that because uh, as listeners to our chopping mall episode can attest uh, when Gary and Sean get cooking, it's uh it's an entertaining time. Um, I also want to plug the episode, the podcast episode I did of uh, Derek Gale's podcast gimmicks about like, uh, you know, uh, conceptual episodes of television shows about the the atomic shakespeare mm. episode of moonlighting uh is now out so check out the gimmicks podcast episode about atomic shakespeare so i'm on there talking about moonlighting since i can't talk about moonlighting on mike and mine's moonlighting podcast these days because of liam. <laughs> you can say it stupid liam because <laughs> of stupid liam <laughs> Thank you for listening. Our website is gleamingthetube.net. We're on Facebook at gleamingthetube, Twitter and Instagram at gleamthetube, and our email is gleamingpod at gmail.com. Production assistance by Liam Gray. Music by Kissing Contest. Skateboarding is not a crime. Skateboarding is not a crime.